Well, last week we started a little bit of an um, angle on our study in Genesis, and more specifically this big flood narrative that we find in Genesis chapters 6 through 8. And, um, and I, I opened up the study last week by asking this question for us to sort of come up with um, terms, maybe bullet point terms that would, in our minds, in very general ways, sort of characterize our contemporary culture. And in particular, our contemporary culture as we experience it here in our community or in this country or however you want to, however you want to qualify that. Um, and I asked for feedback from you guys, and we came up with a number of descriptive terms. And I sort of encapsulated some of that, um, some of those ideas into a few areas of focus that I think are very prevalent and dominant in our culture. Um, the first one I, I cited was this focus on pragmatism. We are very pragmatic people. We have a very pragmatic culture. And oftentimes what is determined to be best is what we determine works best. So in some ways you could categorize that as it's not uncommon for the ends to justify the means. However, we get to a particular end, if that's what we deem is to be the appropriate best working solution, then we can get at that end however we deem best because it's all about, it's all about accomplishing the goal. So there's this element of pragmatism, or a focus on pragmatism. Another area of common cultural sort of belief and practice and priority is this focus on feelings. We are a very emotionally based culture. We are a very, if you want to say, an emotionally thinking culture, meaning we, we think our way, we, we feel our way into decisions. We, 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 we base decisions about things on how we feel about things. Uh, what feels best is what's best, would, might, might be the moniker or the slogan of that kind of priority. We talked a little bit about how, as a culture, we're, we're very much focused on personal convenience. Uh, we're very oriented toward what we can get quickly. Um, we're, we're, we've been blessed, I guess, you could say, in, in our modern time with a lot of typical conveniences. Um, somebody was talking the other day about um, this, just the, the nature of communication and how quickly we can, oh, I know what it was, trying to find substitute teachers when you have someone sick and how, you know, before you had cell phones and everything, I mean, you had to, like, you know, email and all that. You had to, like, get on the phone to a phone tree or have some kind of, I mean, it was a very slower process. Now it's like a text message and you're texting other people or you do a group email blast or whatever. And so just these conveniences that make our lives sort of in many ways easier, if you will, can become a focus to where we see this, this area of convenience or this priority of making things user-friendly, well, that's what's best. So oftentimes that could lead to you know, not trying to take the harder path when it might be the best path. It might, might lead to looking for ways to cut corners <clears throat> because, of course, things should come easy. Uh, we should be able to get our meals like that because we live in a microwave sort of um, culture. So this idea of personal convenience becomes a priority. Um, this focus on self-gratification is, is a priority in our culture. What's most satisfying in the moment is what's best. So we are oriented toward doing what we most enjoy and making that a focus of our lives. We're very focused in our culture on self-promotion. What makes us look good to others is what's best. So we are very much into <clears throat> making ourselves appear a certain way to other people. 
We have in mind a vision of ourselves that we want other people to have, and so therefore we work at perpetuating that image or that vision to other people. It may not necessarily reflect who we really are all the time, but we're certainly focused on perpetuating that, that concept or that vision in our culture, this, promotion, this focus on self-promotion. And then there's a focus on tolerance, this idea of tolerance, which I just summarized as that, that thing or those things that are least judgmental of others, that's what's best. And of course, it's impossible to be completely tolerant because if you're tolerant of these, but you're not tolerant of those with whom you disagree, then you're being intolerant toward those whom you, whom you disagree. So it's really a, a false notion, this idea of tolerance. But nonetheless, it is certainly a highly valued um, um, virtue, if you will, in our, in our culture, this idea of just being tolerant of people, uh, not being judgmental, not being harsh of people, uh, letting people live, let, live and let live, you know, that kind of idea, this idea of tolerance. And we, we kind of put all that out on the table because I wanted to draw a contrast between what we experience in our everyday life in terms of modern culture and modern cultural values and areas of focus to see how, how aggressively this account of the flood collides with those sentiments in our common culture. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a violent collision. I mean, it's so pervasive and, and so substantial when you read the flood narrative that it really just grips your attention if you're just thinking about it from that perspective. And so last week we spent time focusing on a few different elements of this um, to kind of draw this distinction between how God reveals himself and how God reveals his plan of redemption um, how God articulates who he is by what he does, how God communicates what he values and what he deems important. Um, when you look at that as it's, as it's revealed in the flood narrative in particular, you see this harsh reality of God's assessment of man's condition. That God's assessment of man's condition is, is very, very harsh. It's very, very direct. In other words, it's not oriented toward uh, you know, an, some idea of tolerance or um, making things convenient or promoting you and making you look good to others. It's none of that. In fact, it's just quite the opposite. And we looked at all, you know, the relevant passages in the flood narrative that speak about this pervasive outward wickedness, this comprehensive inward corruption. And these are, these are assessments that God gives in the narrative. This is God saying, I, I see that man's wickedness is comprehensive and pervasive. I see that every thought and intention of his heart is only evil continually. This is God's assessment of man. And how we contrast this with how in our culture, in our day and time, the, the diagnosis of what man's ultimate problems are are so far away from uh, God's assessment. You know, man's problems, I, I gave you an example of this when I read from the 15 global challenges as they are identified by the Millennium Project, this this huge organization that is made up of what would be considered the, the greatest thinkers and, and wisest, smartest, most intelligent, most astute, most broadly experienced people uh, in the land. And they come up with the 15 global challenges that face humanity, and none of them have to do with man's corruption. None of them have to do with man's innate sinfulness and, and separation from 
his creator, his, her creator. They're all based upon moving man toward areas of tolerance or toward areas of comfort, toward areas and experiences of ease and plenty and satisfaction and collective let's all get along kinds of ideas. These are the challenges. These are the, the problems that, that, that this think tank believes are the most prominent that need to be solved in humanities uh, in all the cultures of humanity. But the flood narrative, as does the rest of Scripture, is crystal clear about what man's problem is. And it's, it's summed up in that verse in chapter 6, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. And so the flood narrative just goes right head into the cultural sentiments and just says, the assessment is harsh and bleak. And that's man's condition. That's God's assessment of man's condition. We also looked at the sweeping severity and the global magnitude of God's judgment of man's sin. This this flood narrative is just, it's when you just read it over a few times and you see how descriptive this judgment is, that that God is going to blot out man in, in a comprehensive kind of way. Land animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, I'm sorry that I've made them. We talked about how large the population could have been at that time, how this was a massive judgment on humanity and on the earth as well, on on animals and other other of God's creation. Massive extensive, sweeping, aggressive, violent judgment that took place. And you run up against this God who is judge and who is wrathful against sin. You run up against this right there at the very beginning of Genesis. He doesn't waste any time, and he doesn't offer up any apology. That's the other thing that you notice about the narrative, especially as it relates to God's proclamations and God's descriptions of what he will do or what he is doing or what what he did do, it is very matter-of-fact. There's no equivocation, there's no rationalization, there's no apology. It is God in his full justice with sweeping judgment, and it's, it's vast. And so when you think about the, the sentiments and the focus of, of much of modern culture, and even even us as Christians, and even those who would gather in churches, how so much of the thinking and so much of the focus are on things that prop up man and his importance, as opposed to recognizing the, the significance of God and his, his wrath and his grace um, that we see here in this flood narrative. Well, that's going to turn our focus now this week to this, this element of God's grace, and and you see in, in this particular narrative, and again, we're, we're, we're setting this in the context of how it collides with the modern mind and the modern experience of culture and the modern values and priorities of our, of our culture. When you see the grand yet very specific scale of God's redemption, God's redemptive plan. God's salvation, as it is revealed in the, story, in the flood narrative, as you see God's saving work throughout all redemptive history, as you see God's salvation plan in the New Testament under the New Covenant, it is not something that the modern mind would really appreciate very much at all. And I want to talk about that a little bit in light of what we're, what we're talking about in this context of how this collides with the modern mind. 
What you see in this flood narrative as it relates to God's redemptive work, you first see what, what I would consider or I would call a generous call to and a generous opportunity for repentance. And that's common in, in, in biblical history and redemptive history, and it's common in, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, in our, in our day. There is a very generous call to repentance, a very generous opportunity for repentance when you look at it in the context of the flood narrative. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So you see in sort of this backstory section of the flood narrative, you see God essentially starting what would you, you might consider a countdown clock. 120 years that my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So that raises the question, 120 years, well, what kind of is happening in that 120-year period? And, and sort of putting some pieces together, both prior to this time in our text, in the, in the biblical text, but also pulling in from other parts of Scripture, we know that, for example, uh, in, in, the, in Genesis 4.26, uh, when it's speaking of Seth and his son Enosh, uh, it says, to Seth also was, uh, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that term, we talked about this when we were going through this passage, but this is not just individual men who would call upon the name of the Lord, who would maybe have a relationship with God based upon faith that was vibrant and real and true, but that this term or this description also carries the idea of proclamation, proclaiming the name of the Lord. So there's this element of, of proclamation of the goodness of God, the grace of God, the, the nature of God, the law of God. Um, there's this proclamation element to this calling upon the name of the Lord. And so you have this, this same uh, sort of description of um, Enosh, excuse me, Seth and Enosh of being in that time calling upon the name of the Lord. Then you have the line of Seth where you have Enoch, who was a man who walked with God, sort of another indication of this public, well-known man of God who walked with God and who was likely in the line of those who would proclaim the name of God. And then when you get to Noah, you have this period of time where there is opportunity, there's a, there's a, there's a call for repentance, there's a call to walk with the Lord. In fact, you go all the way back to now in the first few chapters of Genesis when, when you look at uh, the, the story of Cain and Abel, and you see that even God himself is appealing to Cain that if you will do well, then things will be well with you. But if you do not, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. So there's this persistent call and appeal by God and by the people of God, by his, his chosen ones, calling out for repentance, calling out the coming judgment of the Lord. And so you have this period of time where this is clearly taking place. When you look at uh, Peter's description of this time in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then you have Peter again in Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the, until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, is how he's described there, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world, upon the world of the ungodly. So you have this period of time in which, in other words, in, in our minds when we think about the flood narrative, it sometimes, especially if you read it from a certain angle, it sometimes seems like that, that, uh, that God decides he's going to punish the, the earth through judgment, uh, and punish the weakness of the earth and the weakness of man through the judgment of the flood. And so he just goes to Noah and he says, build an ark. And so he starts building this ark and then he tells him to get on the ark and the people get on the ark. Uh, Noah and his, and his family get on the ark. <clears throat> then the floods come, the, the, the deep bursts forth, the windows of heaven are open, all these descriptive terms of this judgment that comes. Um, and then the water abates and they get off the ark and they start over. But what really is happening, and you have to kind of put yourself into a, a sort of a time experience here of a long period of time when God determines that he's going to judge. And even prior to that, this, this recognition that there are God's people who are heralding and proclaiming the name of the Lord, proclaiming faithfulness to the Lord. And then during the time of Noah, uh, this this proclamation was taking place. So there's a very generous call that's being offered up here. It, you would you you could equate it to the gospel, universal gospel appeal, if you will. Um, Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, "Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Or John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. And then Peter, when he's preaching at Pentecost, that first sermon after the crucifixion, resurrection, and the, and the Holy Spirit coming, uh, he says in verse 21 of chapter 2 in Acts, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you have in the, the flood narrative what is common, and that is, a generous, broad, sweeping call and opportunity for repentance that is characteristic of God's redemptive purposes and God's redemptive plan. You see this on display even in the flood narrative. Well, I would say that it's we don't we don't know for sure um, what what means of of um, like what sources of authority or what the communication means and all that would look like. But I mean, I think if you just equate it to what often happens, I mean, when I when I'm in, in my parenting, um, in the parenting of my kids, especially as they're growing up and younger and, and, and their minds are developing. Um, the passing on of truth is day by day in every moment of instruction, bringing to bear the, what, what is known. What you've got is your basis for truth. You've got the Bible. What did they have as their basis for truth? 
I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we don't we don't know because you know they just we we just don't know. But but obviously there was because when you go back to, I mean, in the garden, obviously you have the the singular command, so you have this indication of God's um, uh, moral law being a part of His nature and a part of His expectation of His created His created image bearers, if you will. And then when you go into the account of Cain and Abel. You have the the presence of uh, worship that seems to be a prescribed form of worship. So, I think that you know there's there's a, an absence of specificity, but there's a, pref- a uh, um, there's the presence of I think reasonable implied understanding. So you have so that you can say you know that there was elements of moral law and moral code that were revealed. That was in the nature of God. How it was revealed and how that was propagated through family and, and generations and all that. I mean, it's probably mostly verbal, but I don't know how much written language was present. And then when you think about um, the prescription of some form of worship, what is acceptable and unacceptable, so that gives you an indication of God's intentions and his communication of those expectations. Uh, it somehow. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. I just think that you know that. He didn't feel guilty. Do you think he did? Well, he didn't feel guilty. That appears. Doesn't matter. But wouldn't it be inherent after eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil that they have that knowledge? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you're trying to kind of if you're trying to kind of determine what is or what isn't solely on what you, in other words, it's like saying if it doesn't say this specifically, then it's impossible that it was there. So it, it that's that's an argument from silence, and it's not a very strong argument. So, but anyway, we can go far afield in these 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 discussions. Let's get back to um, the the text and the subject at hand. Um, I, I like I said, I don't know exactly how what the, the sort of the heralding sounded like, you know, what the proclamation, what the content of the proclamation was. But you have all surrounding this narrative indication that the, the truths of God and the truths of God's uh, plans and the truths of God's expectations were um, accessible and available and, and proclaimed without knowing specifically what the language and the locution of that language and how they you know, framed up the arguments and all that. We don't have that detail. Um, so nevertheless, you have this, this generous call, which is part and parcel to God's plan and purpose and common to his activity in redemptive history. Um, and, and we see this in the New Testament as well, this, this universal call, if you will. Um, you also see in the flood narrative a public spectacle as the means of salvation, public spectacle. The ark. Think about the ark. This is a, it, it's estimated 55, maybe 75 to 75 years in the making. This construction project of this massive vessel. 450 feet long, give or take. 75 feet wide, give or take. 45 feet high. This massive vessel right there for everybody to see. This ongoing construction project, coupled with this proclamation, however it might have sounded, whatever it might have, whatever it might have the contents of it been, for 
50, 60, 70 years while the ark's being built. So it's this public, visible spectacle that's being put on display that will be the means of salvation in this flood narrative. There's, there must have been tremendous curiosity amongst the observers. What on earth is this? What, what, what is he building? There was likely fascination. Some people sort of intrigued by it. Some people curious at the first blush of this whole thing as it's being built over this period of time. And then maybe sort of a, a fascination to want to know more, inquire more, maybe get closer to the construction project, maybe closer to this family that's building this vessel. And, and there's probably no small measure of ridicule. I mean, the nature of the culture is described as the, their hearts are only evil continually. Every thought and intention of their heart is only evil continually. It's characterized by violence, the scripture says. So you have to imagine that there was no small measure of ridicule uh, that was taking place because of this public thing that was on display that was going to be this means of salvation, putting it out there for everyone to see. Scorn, um, just, just accusations of folly. I would, even, I would even speculate that there was no small amount of fear uh, that, that this spectacle might have induced in people. And what I, what I thought of when I thought of this, this emotion of fear is that um, on one hand, it's this fear of, could this be true? I mean, could this be right? I mean, is, this, is, this, is it really this thing coming? But then the flip side of that is fear of these wackos that are building this thing. Like, if they're willing to do this, what, what else might they be willing to do? So just this whole experience that, that and again, I'm, I'm kind of trying to throw some things up there that could be possible, but who knows what this, this span of time with this construction project in the midst of crying out that there's the coming judgment and return to the Lord and whatever that, whatever that message, that appeal uh, sounded like, you have this public spectacle of the ark being put on full display to, to confront people's minds visually and to challenge their thinking and to move them to greater degrees of confidence in their own way of thinking or to help them wrestle with the possibility of, could this be true? Who knows? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just speculating. But nonetheless, it was a public spectacle. And not one person repented. Not one person repented. But the public nature of this spectacle, think of the cross. Think of the cross, this public execution at the hands of the Roman Empire, the ruling empire, in response to this outcry of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people during the most significant season in the Jewish calendar, Passover, when the city of Jerusalem's population swelled by as much as 500%, a very public spectacle. This, this execution of this king of the Jews. The, 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 and you get glimpses of responses of people. You know, the Roman centurion and, and, and the disciples and, and 
the people scoffing and mocking and the Roman soldiers who were attacking him and all this public intercourse and discourse and communication and reaction and response taking place to this public spectacle of a crucifixion. A, a, a level of absurdity on the face of it. You're telling me that this man is a king? You're telling me that this man who has been subdued by our oppressors is going to be our savior? There, there's a level of sort of scorn and scoffing that could be associated with that kind of spectacle. And the same thing was with, with the ark. So you have these, these common characteristics of this story of salvation taking place here. Then you have the necessity of sovereign grace to receive salvation. It says in chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a man who was a recipient of God's sovereign grace. He, he found favor. That's another term for he found grace. His distinction initially was not his own. His distinction was the favor of the Lord that was put upon him by God himself. And yet, you also have, in addition to the necessity of sovereign grace, God's decision to pour out his grace on a person. But you have the necessity of true faith to receive that salvation. And you see this in the narrative. It says in in chapter 6, excuse me, that was verse 8 where he found favor. Chapter 6, verse 9, he was a righteous man. He had been made right with God. He had given himself fully to God in faith. Hebrews eleven seven describes Noah's by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark, an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah put on display true faith, true saving faith. It was characterized by a blameless walk. It says in verse 9, he was a, <clears throat> a bl- excuse me, a blameless man in his generation. So his lifestyle and the way that he lived out his life was an outworking of this genuine, true, saving faith. He was a devout man. He walked with God. So this was a, a point of daily devotion. It was a point of routine commitment and conviction. No doubt a renewal of commitment and conviction. Um, and the ebb and flow of working out salvation, the ebb and flow of dealing and struggling with sin, but, but seeking to follow the Lord. He was an influential man. He was an obedient man. It says in verse 22 that after he gets all these instructions about this really crazy project that you're to undertake, it just says, and Noah did it. He did all that the Lord commanded him to do. So this true faith worked itself out. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was granted sovereign grace. He expressed that through true saving faith that worked itself out in all these various ways. And that is true of us today. We do not, we do not manifest faith through a solitary confession. We manifest faith through a working out of what God has wrought in us. 
And that's what Noah did. So there was a necessity of true faith to receive the salvation. There's this hope also in this faith. There's a hope of a promised covenant. I mean, Noah had to, had to build his faith around hope of God's promises. In Genesis chapter 6, 17 to 18, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. There's the introduction of covenant. The introduction of covenant. I am a, I am a covenant God. I am, I am a one who establishes a covenant based upon the promises that I make and the faithfulness of my character. I'm a covenant God. Based upon, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives. So there's a hope that God is making a promise. He's making a covenant that he will keep. There's a belief in God's faithfulness to his own covenant promise. As yet to be seen at this point in the text, in chapter 6, verse 17 to 18. So this, this principle of, of faith, of true faith, uh, was, was evident in this flood story. Then you have the specificity of God's saving work. Again, talk about assaulting the conscience of the modern mind. Um, this idea of God choosing to save some, that's, that's a tough sell in many Christian circles, many evangelical circles. But you put it out there into the public sphere, and it's horrible. That's a horrible thing to say. That's a horrible way to characterize God. Why would you say that about God? I'm not. When you look at the text of Scripture, and in particular this flood narrative, you see nothing short of God's specific saving work. The necessity of this specific saving work. You could call it sovereign election before the foundation of the world. You could call it wrapped up in the effectual call that, yes, there's this generous call, this universal call that goes out. Whosoever will may come. Come to me, all who labor. Repent, repent. Judgment is at hand. It's universal. But there is a specific saving work that must happen. And it's evidenced in how God executed that with Noah. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark. You and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Just Noah and his household. So they went into the ark. And the Lord shut them in, it says. And then in 7.23, it says, He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. That's it. That is a specific saving work. That is God's salvation manifest on one man and his family. In the face of comprehensive judgment of everyone else. And when you think about the saving work of God, it is a specific work. It is a targeted work, if you will. The call is universal. The appeal to repentance, the work of evangelism amongst God's people, 
It's a universal appeal. It's a broad and wide call. It's an appeal for all to repent and come to the knowledge of the, of the Son of God. It's a broad appeal. But the actual saving work of God is very, very specific based upon His purposes of election and based upon His bringing about that effective call that actually draws someone to salvation. Whosoever will may come, come to me all who labor, but no one, come, <clears throat> no one, comes, to the, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. <clears throat> That's what we see here in the flood narrative, specificity of God's saving work. But you also see, which is common in true redemption, you see the gratitude and humility of the redeemed. So, in chapter 8, you see all the details there of the floodwaters abating. You see the details of God providing safe passage, if you will. And then you see him telling Noah to take him and his family and all the animals that were on the ark off the ark. Chapter 8, verse 14, in the second month... No, excuse me, sorry. In chapter 8, verse 20, after they left the ark, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, it's easy for us to imagine a, an environment where, you know, the floodwaters have subsided, God's judgment and his wrath has been satisfied. Um, it's time now for a new start with this new with this family, Noah's family. And so we can conjure up images in our minds of them leaving the ark and walking out on to a Garden of Eden-like world. And that is not the case. There's no way that that is the case. That basically the entire planet had been destroyed and the population of humanity had been destroyed. So, while we don't know for sure, it's safe, I think, to infer that Noah walked out onto a, a planet, onto a, into an environment that he didn't recognize, and that had the, the evidences of death and destruction all around him. We shouldn't imagine this sunshine gleaming in and you know, fruit trees all around, a garden-like scene. This is after a worldwide flood that destroyed all of humanity. So you have to assume there was, and we think about what happens in a flood in our day and time, a really significant flood in our day and time, and what's left when the waters subside. It's evidences of destruction and death. I think you have a lot of earthquakes, too, sometimes scientists say. Yeah. Maybe for several hundred years. Yeah. 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 In other words, he didn't walk out into a comfortable environment. It was not it was not likely a comfortable experience. Though I'm sure there was relief for the flood to be over, there I'm sure there was relief to get off that box. I'm sure that that was there, but you're you have to imagine that their their senses were immediately assaulted with the reality of what they were stepping out into now. And yet his response was one of both gratitude and humility. This, this sacrifice, this 
This was a this was a, an indication not just of a thank offering, but actually a sin offering, a recognition that there but for the grace of God go I. Is is the nature of this kind of sacrifice, this burnt offering, and it was it was a a comprehensive burnt offering. It says he took one, he t- it's some of every one of the clean animals, every one of them. It wasn't just he took a dove. So there was a, a profuse um, um, act of worship here and humility in recognizing that apart from God's care and kindness and grace, I am, I am, I am in this death and destruction. I'm, I'm a part of this. And that is the true nature of the redeemed, right? We don't, we don't get delivered from judgment and walk around in boastful pride saying, sweet, I'm in the kingdom now. The attitude and heart of the truly redeemed is one who walks out into a fallen world and experiences the day-to-day travail of sin and fallenness and internal wickedness and corrupt thinking that we have to battle against and the common experiences of, of weather patterns and you know, inconveniences and traffic jams and people assaulting us verbally and not having faith in our goodwill and all the things that we experience in a fallen world. And we don't walk with an air of, of prideful confidence. We walk with an air of, I am dust. I am I am corrupt and fallen and doomed for hell apart from the gracious saving work of God who has redeemed me. So there's an, there's an, there's an attitude of humility and gratitude that is deep in the face of the fallen world that we live in that is part and parcel to those who are redeemed. And then there's always common grace, evident in God's redemptive plan. And you see this in the promise of the covenant. We're going to get to the actual covenant language next week in chapter 9, but in Genesis chapter 8, verses 21 to 22, it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of his heart, of man's heart, is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So even after this judgment, God is offering a promise of common grace, even in the face of knowing that man's heart's intentions will still be evil. There will still be wickedness. And isn't it true that where true believers are walking in true faithfulness and true humility, isn't it not true historically and even in your own life as you just think about your experiences? If it's not true, shouldn't it be true that as a result of believers who are the recipients of true saving grace are those who help propagate common grace. 
In other words, if you are living your life out in the context of, of unbelieving people, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your schools, in our day-to-day, we're surrounded by unbelieving people. And yet, we are compelled by the grace of God in our own lives to live in such a way that the common elements of grace that can be experienced by all are experienced in profuse ways. Think of it like this. I'll put it, I'm, I'm, this, I am not opening up a discussion here, so please, please, for the sake of timeliness of the illustration, but think of the current election period. We're not, we're not about to have a debate, okay? No, 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 no politics right now. But think about the, the nature of, um, of the environment that we operate in in our day and time and that we're living in right now in an election year like this, in an election season like this. Um, it's very easy for Christian people to get exercised over the political process in such a way that they are no longer, not only are they no longer manifesting characteristics of genuine Christian virtue, but they're certainly blunting the elements and the benefits of God's common grace that other people would experience by virtue of how they get worked up or how they get their focus off a little bit onto the political process as a be-all, end-all for, for mankind or what have you. Whatever happens in us sometimes when we get into sort of the political uh, uh, realm of our, of our experience. And yet, when you go to the scriptures, you see things like, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. You see the call to submit to those in authority over you, not just the ones you like, not just the ones you think are going to have the most to offer that you would agree with in terms of political leadership or governmental leadership. So if Christians are truly manifesting the saving grace in their daily lives, it will also spill over into people's experience of God's common grace more and more. And that was the case here. That that God made a promise to not destroy the earth in this way again. And it was tied to his, in a sense, his response, if you will, although God knows the end from the beginning, but it was tied to, in the context of our experience of God, it is tied to his response to this this sacrifice. It was a, a pleasing aroma. And so he made this commitment that would be a manifestation of God's common grace. Not that people wouldn't deserve the same kind of judgment all over again. So, here's what I love about this flood narrative, or part of what I love about this flood narrative, is that you get introduced at the very beginning of the God's revelation of redemptive history to all the elements of the gospel, all the elements of saving faith, of God's elective purposes, of God's nature as a judge of sin, of God's sovereign work in salvation, of the response of the truly redeemed, the response and lifestyle of the truly faithful. You see all of that on vivid display in Genesis chapters 6 through 8 in this flood account. Well, next week we will turn our attention to Genesis 9, and we'll look more deeply at the covenant, the execution or the ratification of the Noahic covenant, and probably do a little bit more of a, 
a broad look of, um, of the covenants in Scripture, but not, I'm not going to go too far with that. Um, but just sort of introduce this, uh, this principle of God as a, a covenant-keeping God, a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, as it's introduced to us for the first time in the Noahic Covenant. All right. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think for sure. But I do think their question was more specifically about sources, source material, right? You know, they were thinking more like, you know, was there, was there possibly uh, some type of written text or, or whatever? But yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's the common, um, that's the con- yeah, that's the, that's the pervasive answer. That's right. Any other comments, thoughts? All right, let's pray.